show i'm marty schneider i'm dan ludwig so and uh before we get into today's episode i want to uh want to throw out some love for twitter user moranis mcdude for sending us something amazing we got fan art i can't it's been a, like a, a very a long time dream to generate something creatively that resulted in fan art and i rubbed a monkey's paw that made it the result of an andy griffith podcast and it's your quote too it's my quote about andy griffith being the devil it's beautiful art like it's it's absolutely gorgeous no i'm so happy that it exists and uh it's this wonderful picture of andy griffith as like Mephist- uh, mephistopheles and there's like a church of Satan in the foreground. It rules. It's and genuinely unsettling to look at. Oh yeah, no. Uh, we considered making it in our iTunes art, but like, I that's not a vibe to put out. No one would listen to us. It's too in sinister. In a good way, Moranis yeah. McDude. They did too good of a job making sinister art. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm very excited about. It. I've never, I've never had fan art made. Um, I can't believe when I, this is the thing. When I worked, for, when I wrote for something awful. Uh, we had fanfic at one point. Somebody created like an entire separate Twitter account to pl- post plot synopses of a mm-hmm. fake TV show starring people who wrote for current releases in general. Was it erotic? No erotic. No erotic fanfic. I feel like that's a level that you graduate to is like there's there's fanfic, fan art, and then it becomes erotic. You know that if this continues, there's going to be like Marty slash Dan fanfic. Yeah, I've made peace with that. And I'm okay with it. Yeah. I'm okay. Maybe like, maybe some time traveling fic where it's like a Pleasantville situation where we get sucked into the television. I'm just spitballing here. I'm definitely not saying anyone should actually write this for us. If, wink, wink. If you give too much of a plot synopsis, then it's not fanfic. Then it's just a commission. <laughs> then it's just someone doing like if you can. You can't provide any guidance whatsoever, or it doesn't count. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. But it would be a big love to Moranis McDude for uh, sending us that truly disturbing, unsettling art. Big yeah, fan. yeah. Big well fan. done. Today's episode, we are covering. Two episodes. I'm actually excited because I like both of these episodes. Yeah. Uh, so it's nice to be able to talk for a period of time about two episodes that I'm very happy about. As opposed to last week, which was just a screaming. I mean, it was still... like I, I loved the last episode in a very confusing way. This one, I, I wanted to skip... Uh, Opie's charity because I was like I'm not gonna have anything to say about this. I have some stuff on Opie's charity. Yeah, I have some stuff on Opie's charity. But uh, so yeah, the two episodes we're still in the middle of a chock block of Don Weiss. The Weissessants. So Don Weiss directed both of these and uh, both written by Arthur Stan. Nope, nope. Uh, one of them was written by Arthur Stander. That's episode eight, Opie's charity. Mm-hmm. The other one written by uh, David Adler. Last time we saw David Adler was when he wrote Irresistible Andy. 
the Andy Griffith fuck episode. He writes a lot of a lot of the more off the rails Andy Griffith episodes. Yeah, he seems to he seems to be obsessed with hookups. He's you know? this he, is one of those things that you notice when you like watch these all the way through and you start to go in depth. We'll start to see patterns of the writers. Like like Arthur Stander really likes to do uh the illegal shit. He really likes the yeah. the, the like crime and criminal aspect. Yeah. Let's just say it. David Adler's horny. David Adler is extremely horny he takes the wheel of every episode and steers it right into horniness i will say the the most attractive women tend to show up in david adler episodes yes yeah because he introduced us to ellie Mm -hmm. and in that episode in the episode we're about to talk about a feud is a feud we're introduced to like a young couple that wants to wed and they're both like not just mayberry tens they're they're perfect tens they're they're like 1950s tens like they're like the lauren bacall beautiful yeah yeah both of them so that's what we're talking about we're talking about episode eight andy's charity we're talking about episode nine a feud is a feud so we're gonna open ourselves up with episode eight and so here is the one sentence wikipedia summary of opie's charity andy is disappointed in opie for giving so little to a charity drive until he learns the reason. Wow, way to give away the twist, Wikipedia. Meanwhile, a former Mayberry resident who was presumed dead unexpectedly returns to town. The It's weird because normally the A plot is the more insane plot and the B plot is like something more mild. Complete reversal. The A plot is like the most mundane thing possible and the B plot is a man returns from the dead. Yeah, yeah, this is so like, I know I usually say that this is the one sentence summary this time it was a two sentence summary mm-hmm. because this is the first time in these episodes that we've seen the a plot b plot uh system so a little bit of advanced storytelling for the andy griffith show mm-hmm. you know, most of uh, most of these episodes have just been very linear thing happens thing happens opie yells thing happens and the and the, the a b plot is usually the plots merge at the end of the episode not so much at the end of the episode and Aunt B stands on the plot of 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 the A plot and just sort of throws a harpoon at plot B and just like like violently through force of will co- like connects them together. The B plot is her white whale. Yeah. Like, she built From Hell's heart I stab at thee. <laughs> she Aunt B like 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 grabs the B plot from across a, an, an abyss and just yanks it over to the A plot. It's insane to watch. But oh. actually, let's go ahead and say that that means that Aunt B actually gets to do something. No, this was the episode where Aunt B becomes a character. Yeah. And yeah. basically like grows into her role of just like the person who calls Andy on, her, on his shit. Yeah, which rules. Yeah. Because there needs to be someone who does that. Alright, so here's the plot of the episode. So it starts off with a pretty neat little scene uh, Andy and Opie are on the sidewalk outside of the police station, practicing baseball. It's pretty mm. cute. Pretty cute. It's uh, adorable. Opie's pitching to him. Andy's catching. You know, father son stuff, right? Mm-hmm. When the town's like busybody, I guess. Uh, I think like, like the designated annoying woman. And like we say that she's annoying because she's just like socially active. Yeah. Uh, so Annabelle Sylvie comes in. Mm-hmm. She comes up to Andy and asks him to be part of her uh, charity drive. She's mm-hmm. running a charity drive for the Under Children Privilege Under Children Privilege the, Fund. Un, the Under <laughs> Children Privilege Fund. The for those who have been crushed under the weight of a, a massive volume of children. 
They are. It's such a. Sh- it's the worst name for a charity I've ever. Not the worst, but like the, the underprivileged children's the fund. Underprivileged children's fund. It's kind of vague, like what they define underprivileged as, but like it's irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, this woman is running a charity drive, and she asks Andy to be on the board of this charity. It sounds like it's been an annual thing, and he's always on the board, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et and uh, while she's talking to him, there's a pretty funny bit. Andy, like, takes her umbrella and positions her like she's a batter. Mm-hmm. And while she's talking, because she talks on for a little while, uh, they do batting practice. And Andy gets to be a pitcher with with an actual batter there as a strike zone. Yeah. It's kind of neat. Um, they go into the court, or into the jailhouse, and Opie goes off on his merry way. Oh, yeah, Opie just fucks off, to, as to go, he has one to do. To go water the streets alone. Yeah. You know, like six-year-olds do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, him and, I'm going to forget her name. Annabelle. And him and Annabelle start, get into a conversation where, and she, they begin talking about her dead husband. She is a widow. Well, they, they, they talk about her, like, social activities. Like, yeah. she's always planning stuff. Uh, he mentioned that after the boys came back from the war, she, like, threw dances and stuff for them. And it's a really funny line where he's like, of course, I kind of figured those boys had been through enough. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, this it, For these two episodes, Andy mentions the war a lot, which is something I, I want to come back to. But, like, it, it, it's sort of weird to think of, like, Andy as a, a former soldier. Like, Andy Griffith fucking killed some people. Like, I wonder, I wonder if... That's going to go away as the series uh, proceeds. I, want, I feel like, like there'll be less military references the deeper we get into the 60s. The closer we get to mm. Vietnam, I think the less the military is going to be talked about. I really Except want season Pyle. four, uh, a little German boy shows up in Mayberry like, You killed my father! Prepare <laughs> to die! Like, I want, like, like, not just Andy Griffith was a soldier in France, like, Andy Griffith was, like, killed some men. It, like, a history of violence, but with this show. I want, like, season six to go full McCarthyism. Are you now, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Don Knotts, uh, Barney Fife, you would get, like, two seconds into, like, pitching McCarthyism, and he'd already have, like, been on board for two years. Oh, I've got a list. I've got a list. <laughs> So they're talking about all the stuff that she's done. And she says, like, well, I have to keep busy since my Tom passed away. Mm-hmm. And Andy Griffith, I love this scene so much. Andy's straight up with zero tact whatsoever is just like, well, your husband was a drunk. <laughs> yes. So what do you fucking do? And then she keeps trying to, like, rationalize it and make it okay. She's like, well, he may have had a drink every now and then, a little bit of time tonic for his health and he was like yeah i've never seen someone take their tonic with beer chaser like yeah. jesus andy like he's just fucking vicious just like hey did you know your dead husband's a drunk yeah. did you know your dead husband was a drunk she's old are you trying to kill her he's throwing social politeness haymakers the entire conversation it actually rules i yeah. like this scene because there's a moment where like she tries to justify it some more and Andy doesn't even say anything. He just looks at her. Yeah. He just gives her this cut-the-shit look. And she goes, yeah, yeah, he was a drunk. Uh, And we should mention the way Tom died Mm -hmm. is, supposedly, he went on a business trip to Charlottesville and got run over by a taxi cab. Yeah. Which is a silly (laughs) thing, but I am going to say... It kind of adds to the theme of, like, the big city is scary. Yeah. Don't go out there. 
you, if you go out there, someone, you know, Wait, something wh- will get you. Why is getting run over? Like, the show presents getting run over by a taxi cab as a like a silly way to die. How is that silly? Taxis run people over probably all the time. Like yeah, it's, it's the nineteen sixties too. Cars are bigger. Yeah. Granted, we discovered earlier that cars are apparently very light. Yes. Right. Remember, children can push cars in this world. But Andy Griffith was like, yeah, getting hit by a taxi cab is a pretty um, like unseemly way to like undignified way to die i mean it is an undignified way to die right like what? but like people die getting hit by cars all the time pretty consistently I'd, I'd say almost every day someone is killed by a car it's a weird thing to uh please don't send us statistics about car deaths that was i cannot emphasize enough that that was a tongue-in-cheek uh, reference i feel like yeah. like i'm gonna get don't 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 at us don't correct us jesus christ so so let's move forward so then the subject of the underprivileged children's drive comes up. Annabelle says that they were doing a drive at the schools as well. School children were getting on this. And Andy, assuming the best of his son, says, Well, I bet Opie's at the top of the givers, huh? And mm-hmm. Annabelle goes, <laughs> No. You know, she delivers bad news about the family a lot more tactfully than Andy does. Yeah. But she points out that, like, He's only given three cents. The other kids have given like a dollar. Some have given like two bucks. And at first, again, Andy tries to justify this. Like, well, you know, sheriff doesn't make much. They must be, uh, must be, uh, they must be uh, tapped like Opie. Because she mentions that uh, the, the, the next the next lowest gave five cents. And Andy and Opie gave three cents. Yeah. And she goes, no, that dude that gave five cents was one of the underprivileged children. Yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah, Opie gave less than one of the recipients of the charity. Yeah. Is the big d- uh, scandal of the episode. Right, so Annabelle leaves at the same time that Opie comes back into the show, into the frame. And is this is round one of an I, I three-part debate between o- uh, Andy and Opie? Yeah, it, it goes for a while. Like, Which, you know, again, I liked. Because, yeah. you know, modern sitcoms... Uh, Especially like in the nineties or whatnot, everything would kind of build to the one discussion, and then you learn the lesson with the one discussion. Yeah, which is not the way I remember stuff going on at my household. You know, there was always the "We'll talk about this more when we get home, young man." Yeah. You know, so I like this. But every every time that Andy does a "We'll discuss this more," it's because Andy is getting his ass kicked. Yeah. Like, it, like it, they throw down on the matter of whether or not Opie should donate to charity three times, and every time it's because, like, if this were a boxing match, Andy would be bloodied on the ground, and and Opie would just be punching his corpse. Like he gets he's he goes toe to toe with a small child on the matter of like. Of societal obligation and gets destroyed every time. Just on the on the on the <laughs> semantics. Alright, so let's get into the semantics. So Andy is justifiably angry to hear that Opie is not giving his uh, share. Yeah. And because he happens to know that Opie has the money. Mm-hmm. Opie has like two dollars and something in his piggy bank. Yeah. So and he's giving him the instructions. He's saying, "No, we're giving him a lecture." Yeah, saying, and there's a pretty funny like it's like Andy clearly has no idea how to talk to his child. He tries to use like somewhat high level mathematics to prove this. Yeah. He says that uh, that there's something like 400. Uh, he doesn't say children. He says boys. There's 400 needy boys. 
uh, in the city alone or in this county alone, or one point five, one and a half boys per square mile. Yeah, and. Yeah, we just learned last week that Opie doesn't know how to write, and you're going to come at him with ratios? Yes! And Opie is justifiably, for a small child, horrified at the concept of a half-boy. It's, it's a real funny bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, again, Opie is, like, immediately winning the, the discussion on the basis of, like, how bad at this Andy Griffith yeah, Andy is. Andy cannot come down to, to Opie's level. Yeah. So he gets frustrated and, uh... Aunt B kind of shows up to spring Opie from this, mm-hmm. uh, and it gives Andy a chance to go, well, we'll talk about this later, because he's got to, like, collect his wits about him. Yeah. He's got his ass handed to him. <laughs> um, he's, like, just on the basis of, like, fundamental nature of having an argument. Like, they don't even get to, like, any sort of, like, ethics or just the, the subject of what charity is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're very confused on that. Uh, we should point out that... Opie makes it very clear the reason he's not giving more is he's saving up money to buy something for his girlfriend. The that which is led to by another very good exchange. Like Opie is like on point under this writer, uh, where he says like, "Haven't you given someone something because you wanted to?" He was like, "Yeah, I punched my friend in the head. I loved giving him that." Uh, it was like like that was free. Ronnie Howard is getting better too. Like yeah, he, we made fun of him being a bad actor earlier. Take that, accomplished director Ron Howard. I do you think we'll ever get on his radar? Maybe. God. Uh, but yeah, no. He um like he starts bragging about punching another kid in the head to defend his girlfriend Charlotte, and there's like one it line rules. that's weirdly badass where he's like. Like, that's not charity. Well, it was free, wasn't it? Like, yeah, Jesus Christ! Yeah. Opie! Opie's just slaughtering! <laughs> Opie is a savage this episode. Like, he can beat you with his fists or his wits, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Opie is a renaissance man for this episode. <laughs> so, so Aunt B shows up to take Opie home. Uh, and they leave. And Andy says goodbye to them, and he walks out, and he sees a man, and uh, the man walks up and says, Hey, Andy, how's it going? And Andy goes, Oh, have a good day, sir. And another mm-hmm. man goes, Don't you recognize me? It's me, Tom. Yeah. It's, it's Tom, who we all thought was dead from the exchange a couple minutes ago. Uh, and Andy is flummoxed. Yeah. Uh, and he's just baffling. He's kind of babbling, like, Where'd you... You're gone, Tom. You can't come back. Which again, it like there's it's it, it's one of a thing that keeps happening on the show where like a Twilight episode, a, a Twilight Zone episode happens, but then suddenly isn't happening. Yeah, there's an episode coming up that like starts off very Rod Serling. It's and... a there's a yeah. I know what you're talking about. It's a Twilight episode for the first fifteen minutes, and then the last five minutes it realizes that it's not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and you know, again, good. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he pulls Tom into the courthouse because, like, it won't do much good for people to, to see a dead man walking around the street. Yeah, he yeah. pulls him, like, he pulls him in like like it's going to, like, the sight of him is going to destroy the fabric of society. Like, people get are going, get it? Oh my god, there will be riots in the street! Uh, but yeah, no, he, he pulls him in and they stab a, the second who's on first conversation of the episode. Also, was Huber in the 1960s just who Abbott and Costello ad nauseum? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's basically just like 
nobody explains anything, and everybody talks in the most convoluted way possible. Which, to be honest, not that different from from modern humor. Yeah, basically every every like joke conversation they have is just like I don't understand the third word you said, and therefore I'm going to misinterpret the entire sentence. Like, but well, uh, eventually it comes out like. Finally, using his amazing detective skills, Andy pieces together that what Annabelle Sylvie did was she was too proud to admit, and this is a little fucked up, but he was, what happened was Tom did not die. Tom did not die. Tom just got sick of Annabelle, uh, and Annabelle probably got sick of his drinking, Mm -hmm. and he fucked off for a little while. Uh, Sounds like he did go to Charlottesville. He fucked off is very accurate because he barely doesn't say, I fucked off. Yeah, Yeah, he basically just says, well, I just took off for a couple of years, and uh, now I decided to come back. So he left her ass. Yeah. Yeah, which... It should be established, he told her that he was leaving. Uh, he was like, he, he did the whole, I'm getting out of here, Annabelle. Like, I'm gone. Right. Like yeah. it's, not, it's not like he disappeared and was yeah. presumed dead. She knew he was gone. Yeah. But Annabelle, too proud to admit that her husband left her, told everybody that he died instead. And went to the lengths of ordering a casket and like, having a funeral. Now, here's the thing. Right. Yeah. This episode goes kind of out of its way to put a lot of blame on Annabelle. Like, it even blames Annabelle for her husband's drinking a little bit. Yeah. Which is very screwed up. That said, if I was married to the kind of woman who would rather fake a funeral than say that I was gone, if you was married to that person, maybe I would drink too. It's kind, of, it's kind of said that, like, both of these people have some shit to work through. Yeah, no, i However, I'm... however, like... The fact that this dude was a drunk, definitely worse than Annabelle's pride. The show does a good job of balancing blame, kind of. Like, I feel like any modern sitcom, it would have just been like, well, it's his fault for being a drunk. Like, I mean, it definitely shifts more of the blame onto Annabelle. Yeah. And it does, like, make her responsible for his alcoholism. Like... Oh, that's true. It does sort of be like, well, I'm only like he he stops being a drunk uh, when he gets away from her. Point retracted. They don't do a good job no, balancing it at all. They don't. Which also like makes you wonder, like, well, why are you coming back then, man? Yeah. Like this is clearly not a good relationship for either of you. I mean, he's clearly not super into it because he's like, well, I came back because I got kind of lonely. Oh. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. He didn't get laid for two years. Yeah, and like, and then he's like, that the slightest possible excuse for him to not like actually show up. He's like, oh, she's doing good. She's cool. All right, I'm gonna bounce. I'm out. Like, never mind. I'm gone. Like, forget ag- you saw my face again. Like, we all know what it's like to kind of check up on how an ex is doing. Like, he didn't have Facebook. He couldn't like stalk her electronically. But you his think- only option was to like. Stop in and ask the town sheriff. Do you think the this was like the equivalent of Facebook stalking back then? Of like just yes, it's, you know you you naturally faked your death because it's the only way you can get out of a marriage back then. Of course. That was probably the most regular thing back in the nineteen fifties through sixties of just burning like, cars off cliffs everywhere. Just like every every town had like four guys who had faked their death, like hanging out in the bushes, being like, "Oh, what's going on? Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm just seeing how she's doing without me. All right, I'll see you guys later." Like, yeah. Yeah. Just have a support group. Like Just that. go on a cross-state road trip. Everybody's Tom Sawyer. Right? <laughs> and then it was a, a funny bit where um, Andy gives Tom the, like, tour of his death. Mm-hmm. They go to the graveyard. 
Tom gets to like Ebenezer Scrooge this and look at his own gravestone. Mm-hmm. It, this is really funny because like you can tell that Andy Taylor is having so much fun with this. Once he figures out what's going on, he's just tickled for it by everything. He's, I think, not like, and not, not like this is funny, but like, yeah, take it, old man. You like watch your, like watch your fucking grave. Like Andy, he is taking a. He some uh oh god I'm about to mispronounce this word Schadenfreude yeah yeah oh, okay I got yeah. yeah uh he's he's taking some fucking Schadenfreude at uh at this guy watching his life just not be there anymore like he delights in it Andy Griffith is the devil yeah <laughs> well, honestly I mean I can't blame Andy for this I would do it too no also, it's fucking funny also literally zero of this is Andy's problem so let's yeah. <laughs> point out by the way Andy has like no. Andy doesn't really have a problem in this episode. Don Knotts does not appear in this episode. Don Knotts does not appear in these two episodes. Don Knotts is MIA for two episodes. He's in the next one, isn't he? Nope. No, he is not. You're yeah. Correct. I think Don Knotts might be gone for more than this. Okay. I think it might be three episodes in a row. Okay. Which later, when there's uh, any sort of thing where I need to make a case where Don Knotts' character is a serial killer or anything like that, I'm going to reference this. Sure, and like, sure. He was like, gone for three weeks. No one knows his whereabouts. Yeah, Don Knotts was gone for three episodes. He was cutting someone's head off in a bio somewhere. It's, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Right, so let's move on. Uh, so they're at the cemetery. It's pretty funny bits where like he's learning all about his funeral, and apparently it was a fine funeral. They keep referencing how great this funeral is. Super weird. Because, well, apparently Annabelle's a great event planner. Right? Yeah. So Of course, of course. Uh, yeah, so... And there's a really funny bit where, like, uh, Annie is so, is, like, trying to brag, like, all of the city councilmen were here, and Tom is like, even Bill Billson, whatever, I don't remember the name, and it's an even him, well, I hated him. <laughs> How dare Annabelle like invite him to my funeral? So after that, they uh, he brings him back to his house, right? Where charity battle part two commences. He eventually convinces Tom to call Annabelle, mm-hmm. uh, who let's by the way let's point out Annabelle completely knows that Tom is not dead. Yes. So. Tom's existence should be less of a surprise to her than anyone else. She fucking faints. She does. She, like, passes out. We don't see this. We see, like, Andy's half of a telephone conversation. Yeah. But she passes out. Which Andy hears over the phone and is like, all right, well, I'm going to hang up and do a nice quip. Your wife passed out, dude. Yeah, you should probably go go check that out. She's fucking down. Probably go deal with that, I guess. Yeah. Get out of my house is what he's basically saying. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm, he's delighted. He's like, this is great, but also I'm done with it. I need to, uh, like, thank you for this brief respite for getting, like, logically destroyed by my child. <laughs> you need to go so I can, I'm going to win this one, I'm pretty sure. I got to go back to the A plot now. Yeah. You need to leave. Yeah, like, and he, he, like, he goes in and he's like, all right, Opie, I have a fruit metaphor that's gonna fuck up your shit let's do this like he, he's like so proud he's like so you want this apple and i decide i'm gonna take the whole thing how do you feel about that opie and opie like bounces back with a well there's a worm in it so i'm fine which andy is flummoxed by and sort of like like gets not adult upset like yeah, like yeah. like child argument upset like yeah like no, there's no hypothetical worm in the apple. What it, and and then he he describes the concept of charity as cutting the apple in half and sharing it. 
want to point out, Andy Griffiths advocated for socialism. Just throwing it out there. I, we may have a, we're going to have a debate there. I don't know where this falls in terms of anything close to economic advocacy. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's not socialism because he's advocating. I, mean, I, I know I just said he's advocating for socialism, but it's not quite socialism. The idea is there that people who have a lot should give to those who do not. However, there's no, there's no state enforcement yeah. This, which I guess makes it not socialism. I mean, a lot of socialists, I think, will come down as anti-charity, basically saying that it's just leaving the welfare of the less fortunate at the mercy of the the wealthy. Which is kind of which is kind of where they get at what what this shows up with with, right? Wait, is this a pro-socialism episode? I have no fucking idea. It borders on that and then veers away at the last minute. See, I alright, it's jumping ahead a little bit, but the reason I was sort of like befuddled by this episode, I couldn't tell where how I felt about it was the, there's a moral of this story. The moral of the story shows up drunk at 3 a.m. and just kind of stumbles in and is and is sort of like, charity is vanity, and then throws up on the ground and passes out. And it's like, do you want to elaborate on that? And the Andy Griffin show is like, absolutely not. Moving on to the next thing. But after losing round two... Andy does what any parent would do and says, screw it, I'm the parent, go to your room. Well, all right, so the reason he loses round two is because he he advocates for the splitting of the apple uh, as, a, as a thing that would be more fair, which Opie then contends that that wouldn't be fair because they're not... The worm uh, doesn't get the any. The worm doesn't get any. And then Andy starts arguing about whether or not a worm deserves apple. And then it it really just gets away from him. And he gets frustrated and sends Opie away. Yeah, Andy Round is two not really yards. a master of rhetoric. You... Which is, which is weird because in the next episode, he like, uh, he, he encapsulates Shakespeare very well. He's the, debatable, he's the Bugs Bunny of this show and he gets his, he, he gets rocked by a child <laughs> twice. I'm, we're going to talk about his rendition of Shakespeare. I have some feelings. Okay. All right. So he sends Opie to his room mm-hmm. and then Aunt B, this is what we were talking about earlier. Where she's just like, here's the B plot, and I'm going to make the connection right now, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. And B shows up to this show, just like, kicks in the door. It's like, I can talk more than three lines now, and I'm going to use that privilege. So she basically, like, she straight up calls Andy an Annabelle. Yeah. She's like, Annabelle Sylvie faked her husband's death because she was so worried about what people might think. Mm. And you are selling out your own child because you're embarrassed that people might be upset that, like, the sheriff's son didn't give enough money. Which, to be, to be fair to Andy, not 100% why he was upset, but a little bit why he mm. was upset. He was very upset that, like, he's the town sheriff, he's on the board of this charity, he's got an image to uphold. So some of it was his own vanity, but some of it was also just like, I don't want to raise a selfish brat. Yeah. So, like, I see, Aunt B's not 100% right. The, the but she's not 100% wrong. The either. show, the episode basically comes down kind of, not not hard, but it sort of comes down anti-charity by accident. Sure. Which kind of, like, this this episode kind of, like... We're trying to force a point of view on a show that has none. I mean... It's kind of what we're doing right now. I One thing that really bothered... Not really bothered me, but bothered me was, like, they keep whipping around these, like, these underprivileged kids. 
and they're like, there are so many underprivileged kids. And, and the entire time they're like, that's why you, a small child, should give more money. And it's like, no, that's why you'd need better state leadership. Apparently your state is awash in dying children. It's North Carolina. Damn it. Yeah. Yeah, again, the the moral of the story is like half-heartedly shows up and is basically the awkward stapling together of the first time there's ever been an A and a B plot. And this and that's what uh Aunt B is doing here. She's like, you know that your son is a good boy. Mm-hmm. And because you're so vain, you're gonna just ignore that and like you don't trust him. Mm-hmm. So she calls Andy out, and Andy kind of shrugs shrugs and goes, Alright, you're right. Calls Opie down, like, alright, come on. Come have supper with us. We're going to have some, you know, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. ignore it. And he kind of says, like, you know what? My boy is good. He is a good boy. And if he, like, wants to save his money this time, you know, if he wants to you know, withhold this time, sure. Maybe maybe he deserves to. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like, you know, kind of saying, like, if I don't want to pay my taxes this time and I want to buy a jet ski, I deserve it. I'm a job creator. Yeah. You know, whatever. And so he calls Opie down. Remember, Opie's been saving his money to buy something for his girlfriend, Charlotte. Mm-hmm. So, Andy, having changed his tune, makes some suggestions. Like, well, you, do you guys want to go to the movies? Do you want to like, get her, I don't know, some, a toy or something? And Opie says, I'm not getting her a toy. I'm going to buy her a coat. Yeah. And everyone's a little confused. Like, a coat? She's like, yeah, her coat is all full of holes and shabby and... Uh, the other kids made fun of her. Remember earlier? She, yeah, we punched, punched that kid. He punched the a kid in the face for making fun of Charlotte. That's why. That little badass. Yeah, yeah. And he was saving up enough money to buy her a coat for next winter. So, really, rather than having a uh, a system in place, the charity, mm-hmm. rather than having that set up, I think we're fine. Yeah. Rather than having a system in place, uh, Opie takes direct action, essentially, to... But again, the only reason why this person being, like, is getting uh, a coat out of it is that Opie likes her. So I guess guess you're kind of right. It is kind of like... like, It's still charity. It's just charity for someone that Opie personally likes, which is... It's it's weird, right? Because there's no guarantee that she would get the coat... The moral of this story doesn't, like, it's not in a direction that makes any sense. Like, We're trying to force a point of view on something that deliberately took no point of view. Do you think, I, I at some point, this, this podcast is going to exist for a very long time. Do you think there's just, like, an old conservative man who listens to up to this episode until realizing that we're socialists and throws his computer across the room? I like, hope so. Like, just, I really hope so. I finally found a, a, a podcast that was addressing my interests, and now I find out it's run by a couple of filthy socialists? Andy is surprised and actually a little bit pleased that that is why Opie... Opie did not give money to the platforms that are in place because Opie was giving his money directly. This is is round three of the argument is basically him finding out that Opie is out charitying him a little bit. Maybe, maybe. I mean, like... He refers to himself as eating crow, so he basically waves a white flag. Yeah, he gives up. He's like, all right. And uh, the socialist in me is saying, like, yeah, direct action is always best. 
Sometimes the systems are flawed. A lot of charities are shit. I mean, I sort of, like, connected a little bit to the uh, charity vanity thing because I used to work for a company, I'm not in any way going to reference it, that would attend and work at a lot of charities, like galas and stuff like that. Any any fundraising stuff. And basically, every time I would go there, I would witness a massive, massive amount of money being wasted on getting the people to donate money, mostly through, like, insane level of decorations and insane incentives and, like, the, mo- the most, like, glorious food I've ever seen in my entire life. And it would almost always devolve into hedonism. Yep. Uh, it's the only job I've ever he- had where I've seen two people fuck in a bathroom. I, I have a I have a charity ball story. Go for yeah, it. Yeah. I was, this was after I moved to Philadelphia. This is mm-hmm. probably, I don't know, summer of 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was making a little extra money by doing ghost writing for a couple of blogs. Mm-hmm. A couple of like travel blogs or whatnot or like tourist stuff. It's shit jobs if you've ever done this, hmm. and the money sucks. But sometimes you get free perks out of the deal, which is kind of nice. Yeah. In this particular uh, time, I was I was covering a story about some guy who trekked to Antarctica, and he was giving a talk about it uh, downtown at WHYY. And I had already written the article promoting this event, so I got to go to the event, and... I showed up, I ate their food, I didn't know anyone there, I went by myself, I was the youngest person there, I was sat at this table with the most boring NPR donors imaginable. Uh, so I bounced, I completely, I ate the food and bailed. But, I'm still down, I'm, you know, I'm dressed up very nicely, it's Saturday night, I'm in downtown, I'm like, yeah, what am I gonna do? So I wander down the street, and I see the National Constitution Center. And I think, you know what? I've lived in Philadelphia a few months. I haven't seen the Constitution. Fun fact, the Constitution is not at the National Constitution Center. It is at the Smithsonian, or at the archives in Washington, D.C., being protected from Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I decided, you've seen the Constitution Center. There's a big lawn, right, that you walk up. So I start to walk up this lawn, and as I look, I see that, like, all the lights are on. And there's, like, spotlights and people are pulling up in limos, and, like, there's valets and stuff, and people outside taking stuff. I don't expect to go in. I just wonder what's going on. So I kind of walk in, and I, because I'm wearing a suit, I'm not wearing a nice suit, mind you, but because I'm very well... Is it well, a tux? I'm not wearing a tux. Okay. I'm just wearing, like, a suit jacket and tie. And the people at the door, not doing their job at all, they're like, come on in, sir. And I go, okay. That's like that 30 Rock joke of like, if you're dressed like a pilot and walking briskly, you can get anywhere. It's exactly what I did. Yeah. So I wander in and I'm very confused about what is happening. Mm -hmm. Because like, there's a big stage. Everyone's dressed up very nicely. My my suit came from freaking Goodwill. Mm -hmm. So I'm very uncomfortable. I don't know what's, what's happening. But over in the corner, there's like... It's, like, set up like a Willy Wonka, like, Candyland, and there's, like, a playhouse and whatnot, and there's, like, a children's section, and I go up the stairs, and there's, like, a huge banquet and a buffet, like, set up. So, I find somebody who thinks that I, who looks like they work there, I don't know, and this is my Marty Schneider Master of Disguise, Mm -hmm. like, plan, is I say, so, 
I'm a reporter, and if you were gonna describe this scenario, this God to, damn it. Uh, somebody on the street, yeah, I'm just, you better have been under twenty-four. I'm straight up fletching this shit. <laughs> no, you are the actual movie master of disguising it. Yeah, and uh, this young woman who uh, I guess is like a volunteer there tells me where I'm at. Mm-hmm. I am crashing a huge banquet for not the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, but something like a like Children's Health Fund or what have you. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the way you described it. It is like extravagance. They are auctioning off diamonds. Yeah. And here's the really weird and fucked up one. So I definitely like grab a plate and start eating the rich people food. Yeah. Because of course I do. Uh, and I definitely, I, I take in full advantage of their open bar. But here's what really fucked up, right? They're trying to like raise money for like sick children. So they start to trot up some of their like success stories. They bring these sick kids on the stage, and like part of it's really sweet because they give these kids like a like a red carpet treatment. Uh, they get to walk up and like, this is what I've been doing, and I'm more than my sickness. I can do this, and like the like the live band is playing the Rocky theme. Uh, oh, this Christ. this one girl who was like 14 and was like very determined. She like gets to the gets to the red carpet. She thrusts her crutches into her mom's arms, and she's like, I can do this on my own. Like, the room is just in tears. I'm like, why am I doing this? But it's also, like, it's also very strange because they're like... Yours sounds good. No, but it's very strange, though, because they're plotting these sick kids up, and they're basically like, look at these cute, wonderful kids. If you don't give us money, they're going to die. I mean, that is sort of the thing of, like, they have to, like, wring the money out of these people. Oh, they were doing it. I yeah. I mean, I bought some, lo- some raffle tickets I could not afford. I mean, I would like, say, like, yours is more affirming because, like... Like, mine, like, I would always see, like, they would have to, like, they would barely mention the thing, like, you're, you're here for, uh, for heart disease, but also, if you give us enough money, you can win a meeting with Hulk Hogan. Yeah, like, yeah, it's a very weird thing. I, and I at think, that point, I'm like, I feel very uncomfortable crashing this, so I'm like, I gotta go. And I'm also a little drunk, so I start to feel guilty about this, so I decided to come clean to the young woman who was, like, volunteering at the event. I decided the to worst tell idea. you it was a terrible idea. It's not advisable. I decided, I was like, hey, yeah, no, I'm not a reporter. I uh, I just walked in. She was like, what? I was like, yeah, I just walked in. I have no idea. And then she was like, that's kind of cool. And then I got her number and we made out once and I never saw her again. The end. How did this story end with your dick? <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. We were doing social commentary and you made it about your penis. God damn it. That was such a long walk. That's my charity story. The rest of the episode is basically nothing. Nothing. Uh, There's a little bit that I do like. Uh, So basically the the epilogue of this essentially is Andy talking to Tom outside. Annabelle for being like... Annabelle only gets one scene in this entire movie. Andy, Annabelle gets one scene, but her presence is is near omniscient. She's everywhere. She's, everywhere. Everyone's She's like Yahweh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Tom and Andy are talking outside. I guess Annabelle and Tom have patched their shit up. They went on a long walk. They talked together. and They boned down. They definitely boned. Um, uh, Andy's like, well, what are you going to do about uh, that grave over there? 
And there's this, like, really neat little bit where he's just like, well, I'm not a drinking man anymore. And, you know, the old Tom, the one that drank, was a, that's the one that's buried in that cemetery. And it's like, it's, it's kind of like... It's poetic. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't think we ever see Tom and Annabelle ever again. So let's just assume they had a happy ending. Honestly, if I... I would have assumed that we would have never seen Otis again based off his brief appearance in episode two. But we, I can discount nothing. That's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, no, it's honestly, uh, who's the who's the writer of this episode again? Um, because he's basically the best one. This is uh, this is Arthur Stander. Right. So just in terms of who also wrote Runaway Kid and Andy the Matchmaker. Really, the best writer. Just like he, maybe he goes the most off the rails out of all of them. He's like his stories are the most technically competent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he's experimenting. He's the only one who's done the A B plot right now. I like to think that this was the first A B plot, and people at home watching this were like. What the fuck? There's a second story inside the story. There's shit for us to keep track of. Martha, call the police. <laughs> They're doing two stories. Uh, All right, so let's move on to episode nine. A feud is a feud. Again, a Don Weiss episode. This time directed or written by David Adler. Last time we saw David Adler was at Irresistible Andy. So, uh, but I really like this episode, and I'm gonna once again read the Wikipedia one sentence summary of this. Andy seeks to end a long-running family feud before joining two lovers, one from each family, in marriage. Yeah, so this episode has actually a really neat idea that I'm surprised I needed to watch the Andy Griffith show to see, which is Romeo and Juliet, but with Hatfields and McCoys, the it, the legendary feuding families. Two hillbillies of Verona, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, they do Romeo and Juliet basically to the letter, aggressively referencing that with Hatfield with a very thinly veiled Hatfields and McCoys. So the episode opens with a horrifying scene. So it opens up with two young people coming to Andy's house in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. and I want to point out I really like. Uh, Really like the music that is played at this point. Mm-hmm. It's very like twangy, but also haunting, and it all and it kind of fades into a like jaunty, jazzy version of the Andy Griffith Show, like exactly mm-hmm. what you would expect a sitcom in the fifties and sixties to sound like. Yeah, but like the stuff that's before it is really good, and I'm I'm gonna play a clip here. come to the window or they come to Andy's house late at night Aunt B looks out the door knows this is what these people are here for apparently this is something that happens on the reg I guess because they have a procedure in place they have garments ready right so remember Andy is not just the sheriff of Mayberry he is also the justice of the peace Mm -hmm. which means he's the one who is able to perform weddings especially weddings for young people who want to get married in the middle of the night and even though 
and he does not sleep in like old timey like Ebenezer Scrooge bedrobes. They put them them on him for the in Aunt B's words a story. Right, like it's they for, want it's for optics basically. Which I feel like if I were getting married in the middle of the night, I'd prefer for my sheriff to not be currently wearing an old timey bedrobe with a with a tasseled cap. Well, you know the the triangle cap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I like. They're doing that for like theatrics, and the person would be like, "I'd rather if you were just dressed like a human adult." <laughs> please, 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 just be a person. Yeah. Whatever. Please, and- this is the most important day of my life. Don't dress like an idiot for it. <laughs> um. So, Opie's there, and the whole house is awake. I don't uh, know why these, they woke up Opie. I don't know. There's weird decisions made throughout this episode. That's the first have, one. They need to have a witness. They need to have a child there. You, you know, can't have a wedding without a child. Maybe he's the ring bearer. You know, this is the second wedding that we've seen in the series. And both of them, like, Opie is the only witness. They need, they <laughs> the need first Opie. one that Opie didn't ruin. They it was need, still ruined, but not by Opie. Well, they need Opie to sign the to sign the wedding certificate. Is that so was that established? Why do they keep having this fucking illiterate child signing wedding certificates? There's no way. I'm does saying, that when, hold when, up in court? I'm saying when you get married, witnesses need to sign the certificate. And apparently, no one who gets married around here knows anyone. All and marriage certificates need to be signed by Ron Howard. <laughs> it's not legitimate unless Ron Howard watches. That holds up today. That's still the law. Yes. Right, I, just, so. I just hurt myself punching my leg. <laughs> uh, all right. This oh. idyllic wedding scene. Not really idyllic. These two super hot people that we mentioned how hot they were earlier. They're insanely hot, both of them. Uh, they're having a wedding. Andy's half-assedly officiating it, as Andy does most things. Yeah. Uh, and then... Two crazed gun-wielding hillbillies burst in with shotguns, and they're just like screaming, screaming. We're not. We can't overstate. Like you think, a lot of the things on this show, we overstate the level of intensity of them. Uh, We really can't understate two hillbillies kicking a door, waving around double-barrel shotguns, and then point them at. Ronnie Howard's face. I'm sorry, there's a shot, and I have to include, point out that Don Weiss deliberately included this shot that Opie is hiding behind the couch terrified. Before Opie hides behind the couch terrified, a gun is pointed at Opie's head, and Sheriff Taylor is like, What's going on? Yeah, yeah like, he's very, like, like, explain yourself. He's very sarcastic about this, and it's just, it's very weird that these two dudes, like, hoist shotguns at the town sheriff in his home, and no one seems to have a problem. Like, alright, so throughout, why, why, throughout the entire episode, he's trying to resolve an ongoing problem. Remember that two men burst into the house, pointed shotguns at the sheriff and his child's face. And he could have arrested them for that at any literally any time. Any moment. He could have put those men in at whatever level of jail he felt like. Yeah, remember, like, this is one of the times when Andy should be doing his job. So let's go ahead and explain why these two men were so angry that these children were... We being... shouldn't call them men, we should call them crazed hillbillies. Let's go ahead and explain why these crazed hillbillies mm. were so angry. Thank you. So, these are their adult children. Mm. And... 
as Andy realizes, he looks at their uh, marriage certificate and realizes that they are the children of the Wakefields and the Carters, which are the Hatfields and McCoys of... The legendary feuding families. The, the, the two families that frequently try and succeed at killing each other. Yeah, they've been fighting for 87 years. I want to take a pause here and point out that the names of the character actors, who I'm sure if I looked at their IMDb credits, they probably are a whole bunch of, like, mm-hmm. John Ford westerns and stuff, but the names of the uh, of the actors playing these two gentlemen are Chubby Johnson and yes. Arthur Honeycutt. Yes! <laughs> so, Johnson I'm, and Honeycutt, Chubby I don't Johnson. even have a thing, a funny thing to say about that that's just, like, deeply gratifying. Yeah. So these two men, Chubby, Chubby Johnson, Johnson and Arthur Honeycutt, are very mad that their children are going to get married. I'm sorry, what are the names of the people that are deeply... Chubby Johnson and Arthur Honeycutt. God damn it. Yeah. It's magnificent. Andy decides against officiating the wedding, despite the fact that, as the young man points out, both of these people are 18. He legally has to. He legally has to do it. And Andy says, nope. And I guess at that point you're just screwed because there's only one person in town that can do a wedding. Andy's response is, there are shotguns pointed at me. I'm not going to do this. I don't get why Andy's response is, there are shotguns pointed at me and my family. I'm going to at least suggest the concept of arrest to these men. I'm going to be like, hey, you're not allowed to shoot a sheriff. That's heavily frowned upon by most of the government. Which, like, he's just like, alright, well, you guys have the shotguns, therefore, you, you're the boss of this moment. Yeah, exactly. Which, maybe that's, like, a thing to the fact that Ian rep, uh, referenced last time, which is apparently we're in, like, reverse Mad Max times, where there were, we hadn't invented laws yet. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, to be fair, like, this, he de-escalates the situation. He just kind of says, I'm not gonna do this, everyone get out of my house, Good night." No one dies, and that could have turned into a bloodbath. It could have been, like, the plot of Free Fire. His, there was a shotgun pointed at his child's yeah. head. Yeah, so everybody leaves, and everyone goes back to bed. And the next morning is the next scene, and Andy comes down to breakfast, and Aunt B and Opie are not talking to him. Cold-shouldering the fuck out of him. Giving him just a cold shoulder. And he's like, what the hell's going on here? And they both say, like, you absolute coward yeah there was uh, i feel like it's the most he has ever been called out in the show in that like aunt b and opie were like we're basically like two grown men pointed shotguns at us what's the point of you like why do we allow you to do all this shit if a crazed hillbilly can point a shotgun at my tiny child face and feel no consequences you sent a man for j- uh, to jail the other day because you felt like it, and another one can threaten to fill my child head with buckshot and feel no fucking consequences whatsoever. You don't get any eggs, Andy. You can go straight to hell. Like, that's the general implication. Except, except you're, you're slightly off because they're mad that he didn't marry those people anyway. They were just like, you were just like... It was your job to marry that I'm couple. kind of on their team. They should. He should have married them. Yeah, like, I'm what not... are they going to do? Shoot a sheriff in his own home? Execute an entire family? So, like, so, so, in order to explain his reasoning, again, to cover his ass in front of his, like, toddler child. Yes. Uh, Andy, his very small child who hates his guts right now. Andy explains that 
This is not the first time that feuding families have had their children want to get together. And he starts to tell a Cliff Notes version of of Romeo and Juliet. He seen, he seen Juliet come down these high steps, and he was so struck by her that he give a soliloquy right there. What's a soliloquy, Paul? Well, a soliloquy is, is where you kind of look away off and kind of talk to yourself. Oh. They used to do that a whole lot back then. You do it today and somebody will take you away. <laughs> but that's what he was doing. And this fella Tybalt, a cousin of Juliet's, come up on him with his sword drawn, ready to pick a fight with him right there. But Juliet's daddy, he didn't want no bloodshed right there in his living room. So all he done, he run Romeo off. But Romeo didn't go straight home. He didn't? No. He went out and hid in the yard. And after a while, he seen this light come on over yonder. And he says, he's, he, he, he says, hark. They said hark a whole lot back then. <laughs> he says, hark. What light by yonder window shines? Well, Juliet, she stepped out onto this stoop right then, and she give a soliloquy. And somewhere in it, somewhere in it, she says, she says, Romeo, Romeo. She says, Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Well, he popped up and says, I'm right cheer. <laughs> and that's where they had that balcony scene. Okay, so post clip, the thing I. I I, I listened to this the first time and thought I was crazy listening to it. Listened to it a second time and realized I was sane. It goes on for like eight minutes. We should All find right. out. So a crazy way to tell a story is to tell it more granularly the longer you're telling it. Because what he basically does is he describes act one of the play and then he describes the next scene after act one and then he describes half of the next scene after that and then by the end he is doing line readings and stage directions so basically the longer you tell the scene the more the longer you tell the story the more it the more detailed you are telling it it's like a russian nesting nesting story i and like that though i really like that it was deeply frustrating no I, I liked it a lot because it was a good dad moment for andy because interspersed with shots of like andy uh telling the story are like shots of opie and a little bit of mb but shots of Opie getting really into it. Opie's like on the edge of his seat. So if you're a dad telling a story to his to your son and you see that your son's getting really into it, you're going to start to bluster. You're going to start to get up really big about it. Uh, the way he was telling the story made me think that he no one... He what a soliloquy is. At the, <laughs> the way that he was telling the story made me feel like no one in that time period knew about like Romeo and Juliet even vaguely and just like people like their entire families like sitting at home and be like and then what happened in Romeo and Juliet like did they know about Romeo it's, and Juliet it's the 60s man they know that Romeo and Juliet exist I, the way Andy was telling this story put me in genuine doubt I was like like the way he told it I was like do these did they not know about Romeo and Juliet back then? You, you, you know, was he you know breaking that, the concept of Romeo and Juliet? You know that movie that that like everybody watches in ninth grade and you're all surprised when Juliet's boobs show up? That movie is going to get made in like six more years. Like People know what, what that is. 
So he explains the concept of Romeo and Juliet. No, no. He explains all of Romeo and Juliet. He explains the first half of Romeo and Juliet as a concept, and then he individually acts out the second half. (laughs) I'm upset about this. You won't, I won't allow you to paint over it. You're very oddly upset by this. Yeah, no, it freaked me out. So Andy gets the idea, after telling the story, that... If he were Friar Lawrence in the story, which he is at this mm-hmm. point, he would go ahead and find out why the families were feuding and see if he could put an end to the feud first before marrying him. Mm-hmm. And then he sets off to do exactly that. And and also, he presents this idea as if it was his plan the entire time to Opie and Aunt B, which it clearly was not. Yeah. Like, yeah. he clearly pulled this out of his ass because they weren't giving him eggs. Like, <laughs> and then he leaves without his breakfast anyway. Yes! Uh, so he fucks off and then goes to... For, he goes to one of them, uh, Chubby... Chubby Johnson, I think, or whatever. He goes. He goes to the Carter's house. Chubby Johnson, Wakefield and Carter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which, by the way, is a great name for a country duo. Um, Wait, it really is. Yeah. So he goes to uh, the Carter's house, and he asks, like, he sees this man sitting on the porch with a shotgun, just kind of firing aimlessly, into just the woods. wildly firing a <laughs> shotgun into the distance. And he's and Amy's just like, you know, there's no one out there, right? There's nobody there. And he asks, like, why are you feuding with this family? And Wait, the answer basically comes down to because. But yeah, yeah. Before we get into that, let's. I just want to circle back to episodes ago where Don Knotts was like, if only there was one crime in this town. Like, like, are you, like, did no one tell you about the fact that there's, like, 17 attempted murders in, in Mayberry every in, hour? In Mayberry, it doesn't count if you shoot at someone if you have the decency to miss. No, counterpoint, it doesn't count as a crime if you have the decency to declare that it is a feud. Because he's, he's not like, I don't want any murder in my living room. He's like, oh no, no feuding here. No feuding in the Griffith house. Like, it's, I think like back then, if you were like, hey, 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 this is part of a feud. They were like, well, we can't, em- we can't enforce any laws now. It's like how Michael Scott thinks bankruptcy works. Yes! I declare a feud! <laughs> but like, ah, yeah, hold off, Barney. They're, they're allowed to fire buckshot as much as they want into each other's faces. If you yell Mortal Kombat, you're allowed to beat each other to death first. That's how it works. God, that would rule. It's basically how it works in Seattle. Elaborate you're- immediately. <laughs> In the city of Seattle, and I think... <laughs> if you're full of shit, why did you choose Seattle? Keep no, this going. Is a, this is a real thing. In the city of Seattle, and I think the state of Washington, like, street brawling is legal. Here are the rules. Number one, both parties have to consent. Yes, we are in a street brawl. Number two, you have to be outside. Number three, you have to be barefoot for some reason. Yes. And number four, when one party is knocked to the ground... The fight is over until that party gets back up and says, I am ready to fight again. Other than that, like, you can fight in the streets in Seattle. I'm going to take a minute and I want every second of silence to remain in the podcast where I decide whether or not you're a liar. I don't... 
if it was, if that was at all true, why Seattle? Because the, that's the, the cost of living in that city is so high. Like, why would that be there and not like? But there's that there that there's no way that's true. It's absolutely true. I don't believe you because it's Seattle. The cost of living there is insane. Why would they allow street fights? Why rich people do dumb shit? Also, the cost of living just became high there in the past couple of years. Oh, uh, they, they would be required been, to change city ordinances. This law has been on the books for a long time. We got real off the rail. So he goes to. Uh, the Carters and says, "Why are you fighting the Wakefield?" I'm really they impressed say, that you're know. remembering the names of these fucking <laughs> he goes, towns. He goes to the Wakefield. He asks, "Why are you fighting with the Carters?" They say, "I don't fucking know." And so Eddie hatches this scheme. He realizes, "Wait, we've had this feud going on for years, but no one has actually shot each other." Wait, wait, wait. let me let's let's let me interject a thing because this is. If not the first, at least the best bestiality joke I've seen on network television where she's like, there has been one instance of a member of our family being injured. And she's like, oh, what is it? And she's like, he was bit by a donkey. It was like, where? On a place that's too private to mention. So there is on the Andy Griffith show a recorded event of a guy getting bit on the dick because he was getting blown by a donkey. What the fuck is wrong with you? That happened! I she ass- literally says on an unmentionable place. Yeah, I assumed it was his butt, dude. Fuck you! No, that was a that was a bestiality joke. I are you kidding I me? I assumed it was his butt. As right, a right. dude who has been bit on the butt by a farm animal before, I assumed it was his butt. No, it was clearly his dick. I'm not going to tell that story because no. you're not going to tell the No, 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 no. <laughs> we are getting into this. We are getting into this. She refers to... Hold on. Hold on. I think we might need to pause and watch the episode because that donkey bit that dude on a dick. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll concede. I'll concede. Wait, seriously. We will, like, I am down to pause it. Shut up. I don't care. We're moving on. Okay, no. The donkey, There, it is maybe fine. the first bestiality joke on network television. It skates way the fuck under the radar. She tells the story of what are they? What's the one of the Hatfield and McCoy names again? Carter and Wakefield. One of the Carters getting bit on the dick by a donkey, and they really skate over it. I feel like if you got bit by a donkey, you wouldn't have a dick anymore. I I can't make any claims about the jaw pressure of a donkey. Uh, I I I I have not studied in the subject. I don't know whether or not a donkey could bite your dick clean off. I won't debate that one way or the other. This is the furthest off track I feel like no, because I really just assumed watching that episode that that was a bestiality joke. No, I bit him on the butt, dude. Why that would it joke? Why would? Who fucking cares? This may be a statement on me that I was immediately like. Bold move, Andy Griffith Show. Yeah, that says making... more about you than it does about me. I was like, oh, you know what? Andy Griffith Show was really ahead of his time making <laughs> a joke. jokes. I, when she said, like, an, an unmentionable place, I would just... You like, went straight to the dick. Well, I wouldn't count a butt as an unmentionable place. It is 1960. Oh, damn it, that's true. 
I was really impressed with Andy Griffith. I was like, top-notch bestiality joke, the Andy Griffith show. Like, I like your version better. Yeah. So, okay. This is Andy's scheme. Once he realizes that the two parties, the two feuding families, don't actually really want to feud anymore. They're just kind of keeping up appearances. Well, the, the thing he establishes is like, oh. that there's been no body count whatsoever in the entire feud. Yeah, yeah, it's a very clean feud. Yeah. Uh, and no one really remembers why they're feuding in the first mm-hmm. place. So, Andy's plan to put this to bed is to get the two men together, the patriarchs of the family, and have them go on, or have them have a duel. Yes. He lines them up. He says, like, uh, he references, like, this is how the French do it. I learned this when I was in the war. I was state. We now know that Andy was stationed in France. Mm-hmm. You know. Which, fuck it, the place where the most shit happened. Andy and Barney may have been at D-Day, and we have to, like, make our <laughs> peace with that. That's, that would rule so bad. If in the background of Saving Private Ryan, Andy Griffith and Barney fight for just... Bumbling through. Yeah, just bumbling through, but also mowing down Germans. Let's let's also figure, like, Andy Griffith was the 1960 Tom Hanks. Like, if you made Saving Private Ryan in 1960, you would have earned this. Earned this. You would absolutely cast Andy Griffith in that role. My erection just punctured the sky. <laughs> damn, dude, I really want that. God damn it. No, I really want to know more about Andy Griffith's time in the war. If you if you if you did Saving Private Ryan in the 1960s and Andy Griffith was your Tom Hanks character, like Private Ryan would be like Steve McQueen. Hmm. Like it would rule. Yeah. Wait, who would Barney Fife be? I'm 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 I'm, I'm talking Andy Griffith the actor. Don right, Not, right. Don Not serves no purpose. Okay, all right, yeah. yeah. I'm talking like John Ford's. That's uh, been said about Don Knotts a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so so would it, wait, next? would you think that in the in World War Two we're going on a tangent? We do are you still think, doing this bit, okay? Do you think that in World War Two, Barney Fife or Andy Griffith would be the killing machine? Here's the thing, right? Uh huh. Maybe the reason why they won't let Fife have more than one bullet is that's all he needs. <laughs> Like, like if we give you more than two bullets, you can mow down the entire state. Like, maybe it's like an enemy at the gates thing, right? Like, maybe Fife is actually a sniper. But we've seen we've seen him not be able to hold a pistol. Yeah, right? we've never, and he strokes those rifles lovingly. Maybe, maybe Barney Fife was a sniper. Maybe, maybe he's like fucking Chris Kyle, like. Maybe, yeah, Barney Fife, like, like at one point, Don Knotts is going to take off his shirt, and he'll have, like, a tattoo count of his kills. Yeah. And no. it'll be just, like, the entire back. 27 like, confirmed kills. Barney yes. Fife, that's what I'm talking about. Alright, you're calling that early? I really am, am hoping that at some point the show will either confirm or deny that. Alright, so back to, back to the Wakefield and the Carters. Mm-hmm. Andy sets up a duel between the two patriarchs. Mm-hmm. He has them line up. He tells them, we're going to, you guys are going to walk away 10 paces, and then you're going to draw on each other. Uh, Yet another who's on first occurs. They do, a, they shtick, they shtick, they shtick. Would they, you call, is this, is this just generally defined as shtick? It's vaudevillian, I would say. Y- yeah. Like, like the, obviously these two men do not want to shoot at each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they keep dancing around it, and Andy keeps finding different reasons for them to do it. 
Finally. It should be said that Andy, while explaining the rules of the duel to them, unloads their shotguns. Yeah, so yeah, he's having them do this with empty shotguns. Yeah, no one is in any danger here. And in fact, this is the only time so far that we've seen Andy fire a pistol. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it's a blank. Like I'm thinking it's like a starting pistol. No, uh, I choose to believe that Andy was shooting a real gun in the air. Okay, whatever. Yeah. I'm choosing to believe it was a blank. That's fair. Uh, that, we we both need interpretations of this show to get through the day. Sure, sure. And he convinces them to shoot at each other. He does the, like, count off. And then uh, he fires his pistol into the air and scares both men away. Mm-hmm. Thus, in his mind, ending the feud. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, he's getting ready to marry these two young people again. Uh, and at this point, uh, the car- Mr. Carter and Mr. Wakefield have a different reason for not marrying the two. Which is, we're both clearly cowards. If, <laughs> if you merged our bloodlines, you would create the most cowardly human being on the planet. Which is incredible. Like, Some, a weird fucked up version of eugenics on this. Honestly, uh, a point that more people should make in terms of their... Yeah, I mean, honestly, you should be like, yeah, my family kind of sucks, your family kind of sucks. If we had a kid, there's a good chance that that kid would suck. Even just like, like a lot more people in the world should just look at themselves and be like, I suck. My bloodline should not be carried on. Like... I feel like this episode's revealing a lot about you, Dan. I mean... I shouldn't exist. In terms of my ancestry, like, someone fucked up. The Ludwigs should have probably died in the 1800s. Wow, buddy. Yeah. So, to disprove this theory, uh, the two young star-crossed lovers Mm -hmm. come in and stand up to their patriarchs. They respect the... Not their respective, but each other's patriarchs. The sexy star-crossed lovers. I want sexy. that on the books. Yeah, these two sexy star-crossed lovers show mm-hmm. up. And they're both like, well, you know what? If I can't marry, you might as well shoot me. So they stand up to their patriarchs. And Andy goes, well, clearly they're not cowards. And then, he's, in fact, he says, these two are so not cowardly, any kid that was came from them would be a genuine hero right out the gate. <laughs> Andy Griffiths does not understand genetics. You know, maybe he was better in English class and science class, whatever. Uh, and so they say, you know what? Fine, it's time to get married. And then, even though it's the middle of the day, they make him put on the stupid Ebenezer Scrooge Yes. Cap. It's really funny. I like this episode a lot. And, and the, so they, but the hillbillies hold the entire wedding procession at shotgun on the logic of, we want to make sure this child happens as soon as possible, with the general implication being that there are going to be two hillbilly dads pointing their guns at the conception of this child. It's so fucking It's great. so great. It's probably, in, it's the best episode of the entire show so far. It, okay, yeah, I'll give it to you. I'll give it, yeah, I think so too. I think it's it too. the phony, like, it, with the uh, aside of the, uh, the weird retelling of Shakespeare. There's nothing wrong with the episode. That's the best part. What are you talking about? It's, alright, it's not necessarily bad, but it's the most insane thing I've seen (laughs) on a TV show. So, let's go ahead and go to our ratings. And I want to point out something. We talked earlier about how Barney Fife is not present for this. Yeah. Which means both of our Fifeometer scores are going to be really low. So, if if this is the first time you've tuned in, we rate our episodes on two factors. 
There's the Andy meter, which is how good is the episode. Mm-hmm. And then there's the FICO meter, which is on a scale of one to ten fives, how horrifying is this episode? So, and- let's start with Opie's Charity. Mm-hmm. Scale of one to ten Andes. I'm going to say, like, I'm going to say 7.5, maybe even eight Andes. I like this episode a lot because it's just so weird. I'm going to lowball it with seven. Okay, all right. Yeah. I'm going to go a little higher than that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed this episode. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm going I'm to be a little more conservative. Sure, sure, sure. And on a FIFO meter, Opie's Charity, <sighs> nothing, really. No, like, nothing. nothing. I mean, objective about it. It doesn't really take any stance whatsoever. It really depends on your specific views on economics and, like, and, and economic theory, and even then, you're gonna have a hard time prescribing any morality to this thing because yeah, no one cares. Yeah. All right. So I'm I'm gonna say like one fife. Yeah. No. Half Z- a fife. I, I'm gonna just say zero fifes. Zero fifes for a zero fife episode. Yeah. Hatfield and McCoy. Uh, the next episode. Uh, I don't care. Recall the title. Whatever. Um, the tale of two hillbillies. Tell the tale of two hillbillies. Um, Andy meter. Nine? It's, yeah, nine. Nine. nine it's one 80s. of the best it, episodes so far. It's up there next to Manhunt. Yeah, like, it, I'd say it beats Manhunt. Uh, right, so yeah, it's, it's good. It's a very good episode. That's, I'm going to give it nine Andes. Uh, and on a five score... Okay, alright. So well, I'm going to give it at least two fives, because we've established that apparently you can just shoot wildly at people and like, wave a gun around and no one cares. Oh, wait, 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 wait. We're going to deliberate on this. Uh, so... On one hand, there's nothing like the moral of the story isn't horrifying, which is out of the ordinary for a uh, Andy Griffith show. Andy Griffith show. Yeah. But in the other, a it, shotgun it, it, is pointed at a child's head, and very little hay is made out of that. It's out of character for a Don Weiss episode. Yeah. God, I, I'm gonna say five, 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 uh, fives. Uh, I'm gonna say three. I'm gonna say three fives. Really? Yeah. Yeah. A, ch- a shotgun was pointed at a child's head. You sure you want to establish I'm, that as your I'm your gonna, metric for I'm three fives? Three fives. I'm a, three like Ro- little I'm, Ronnie Howard almost met his fucking maker on this episode. I feel I'm, I'm setting myself low because I feel like it's gonna get worse. <sighs> I'm giving myself a low baseline. I mean, I mean, how much? I really again. Three out of ten in terms of horrifying. A child looked a shotgun in the eye. You're not. You're not. You're not. Four. Four. I'll okay. Four. I, the fact that I teased four out of you is insane for this fucking show. Opie has his uncle Barney around. He's used to guns being pointed at him. You uh, let the record show that you have a very loose view on child murder. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I mean, those, 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 maybe when they actually shoot Opie, my entire metric is going to be shot to hell. I'm I'm saving myself for that. <laughs> that is uh, our episode for today. Thank you very much for joining us here on Breaking Mayberry for a very special episode where we both enjoyed everything. Um, I feel like the loudest episode we've done. The next time we're talking about uh, Ellie for counsel. We're talking oh, about a, an episode that questions whether or not women should be able to vote. And then we're talking about Stranger in Town, which is the most Twilight Zone of these episodes. So if you don't want to miss those, be sure to subscribe. Uh, please make sure to like, review. We'll be on iTunes by this point. Yes. So you can listen to us on SoundCloud. Be sure to share us with your friends. Uh, give us a review. Give us a rating. It definitely helps us. It definitely helps us show up in search results. 
and uh, gets us in the earbuds of other people. So if you like the show, please subscribe, please rate. And you know, I'm going to throw out, tweet at Ron Howard. Yeah. Like, specifically tweet at Ron Howard. I want want to be a blip on his consciousness. That's that's fair, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just, like, kind of, I'm not saying harass Ron Howard. But you're not not saying. But I said those words, and then I'm moving on. Okay. Yeah. All right. Until next time, we'll see you all down at the fishing hole. girlfriend yeah according to the ultra reliable mayberry wikia uh-huh according to that um this is the last time we see miss rosemary but that actress is recast playing different characters several times so that might explain some of your confusion wait like barney fife is fucking an entirely different woman in each of those times i just assumed it was consistently the same woman he'd courted yeah, like, that would be the natural assumption. Is Barney Fife laying pipe all over Mayberry? Like, Barney Fife is uh, one of... I mean, like, he's at least in the top four of Mayberry's most eligible bachelors. That... We've met the other three. That's... This, this is a fictitious development. This isn't even a real thing, and that makes me insecure. Yeah, that, like, yeah. that upsets me that Barney Fife is, like is managing to sleep with the fact that Barney Fife has had sex with more than one woman so far in the show if that's true is I feel like I feel like they would call up. it relations he's had relations he's been calling on her been calling whoa <laughs> that pronunciation got away from you yeah.